Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington on assignment here in Surprise, Arizona, joined by Evan Grant, who normally is here in Surprise, Arizona, but is back in Dallas for some reason. What's up, Evan? Hi, Kev. I came back to um, celebrate my mom's 95th birthday yesterday. Um it was a big party. Uh, actually, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> but uh, three weeks in Arizona, I figured I'd give you a shot at the uh, at the lovely abode with the hot tub and everything, so you could have a couple of days of partying, and then I'll go back for the uh, last couple of days. All right, cool. I, I what I do find interesting is that when you're there, it's you're on an assignment, and when I'm there, I'm on a boondoggle. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's because you've always got some kind of deal cooked up. Well, oh, I'm a- oh, Gary Level, a sports editor of the Dallas Morning News. I really need to be going to Hawaii for uh, a month to to see if I can scout out these untapped potential of baseball players on the on Hawaii. Well, that, that's a certain- that's a typical Evan Grant boondoggle. I was certainly working on that before they traded Isaiah Kiner for left. <laughs> That one didn't come to fruition. Exactly. Um, so we should we should mention, right, that it's just you and me today. Yeah, we should mention that. Uh, Callie Kaplan is once again off skipping around, uh, you know, not fulfilling her responsibilities on the podcast. Uh, we, she's, got, she's getting uh, dinged for this. Uh, it's, it'll be in her evaluation. Uh, David Moore is at the NFL meetings uh, where he listened to Jerry Jones gobbledygook uh, yesterday. Uh, we're going to get to that a little bit later uh, when we talk about the, the Cowboys. Uh, where we'll also talk later about uh, the Final Four. Uh, I don't know how many people had those four teams in their bracket, but I, I, uh, I had one of them. That was it. One of the Final Four. So Kansas, you had Kansas, right? Yeah, Kansas. Yeah, I had three, three number one seeds. I did not have Baylor uh, in my uh, Final Four, and uh, and I was right about that. I wasn't right about anything else, but I was right about that. So. Um, you know, the, the teams from Texas that did really well, uh, were, were doing really well, just completely bombed at the end and in Arkansas too. I always consider those, you know, the old Southwest conference teams. That was fun to see Arkansas and Houston making this run in the tournament and playing really well. I just, you know, you don't want to see them go out like that. Those games were terrible. Uh, well, the Duke, the, the, the Duke, Texas Tech game was not terrible by any stretch. Well, it wasn't, but I didn't mention them. I said, I, you know, Texas Tech is, you know, played very well. And, and uh, the, the problem with all of these teams, you know, and, and like I said, we're going to get to this some later, is that what the tournament has become, it's always been a guard-oriented tournament, tournament, but now what it is is a guard-oriented defense, uh, make our free throws. We can do and make, and make our three-point shots. If we can do those four things – uh, we got a great chance of going deep into the tournament, especially if you have older players on your team. You've got juniors and seniors, and that's what that's why you know Jay Wright at Villanova 
is constantly finding himself in the final four. That's those are the kind of players he has. Uh, it just gives him such a huge advantage. I think what did happen in the tournament uh, last week was that both Duke and North Carolina finally lived up to their pedigree. Uh, and they finally got going. It's kind of one of those things where you can't let these teams keep playing because sooner or later their their talent is going to show, uh, and they and they will grow up a little bit over the course of the tournament. And that's what's happened. But before we talk about all that, uh, let's uh, let's talk about the Rangers. Uh, I was out here. I got here late Sunday night. Um, went out to Peoria uh, and watched them play the Mariners. Um, you know, saw uh, you know their uh, their their brand new uh, ace acquisition, um, Robbie Ray. And uh, he really, for for about four innings, he really bamboozled the Rangers. His his assortment of off-speed pitches uh, really had them off balance. Uh, And and for a team that's been scoring runs at the clip they have been lately, uh, it was remarkable to see that. Now, in the fifth inning, he did start to – stumble a little bit uh and he ended up giving up a couple of runs after he was gone those runs were charged to him um but uh i, I did think it was unusual that uh they would send him back out there for a fifth inning don't you evan i mean what are we doing well i i, I i've talked with chris woodward a little bit about this and i've talked with doug mathis a little bit about this and i i feel like you know last week when the rangers played the a's um now i'm forgetting who started for the rangers that day uh but he went two innings um, and Sean Manaya pitched for Oakland and he went four and two thirds. And it, what's really kind of stood out to me is that the Rangers, and I would think this is kind of an asset for them, have been bringing their pitchers along really slowly uh, where other clubs are, are moving faster. And I think the Rangers are prepared to go into the season with their starters going four innings um, in games for the first couple of weeks or the first one or two turns through the rotation. And I think those teams that are, that are pushing guys to go faster and deeper are risking injury. Um, you know, this is, this is not exactly like 2020 when guys stopped, started, stopped and then started again, but the Rangers certainly had experience on the negative side there when they lost both uh, Corey Kluber and Jose Leclerc in the first week of the season. And that completely, um, uh, wrecked their their hopes in 2020, uh, but th- there's a lot of unknown here, right? I mean, you've got a very short spring training. You you didn't have eyes on guys for for three months, and I I think there's nothing wrong with sticking to a pretty uh, conservative approach to start the season, especially now that you're going to be able to carry uh, 28 players. And in some cases, that means 10 relievers for a lot of teams. I think that the Rangers among them into the first month of the season, it just allows you to be a little bit more cautious with, with pitchers. And I think that's just necessary, to be quite honest with you. Then that, uh, now, I was going to ask you that. So that is for the first month of the season, that's how long they can carry, carry uh, Well, for the first three weeks of the season. from three. Since the season opens on April 7th, on May 1, rosters will have to be reduced down to 26. Yeah. Okay. All right. You know, I don't know why you wouldn't. Uh, I mean, what, what's the harm of allowing that to, to go on a little longer than three weeks? I mean, you know, you, you, you shut down everything. And I guess their their feeling is that, well, then that's that's the three weeks that you missed. But you know how that is. They're not all getting any work either. Well, that, I, for me, the, the thing here is, you know, I was very surprised when an, uh, when an agreement was reached 
that it didn't immediately include the wording that we would play with um, 28-man rosters for the first portion of the season, whether it was two weeks or three weeks or a month. I, it didn't matter. Um, that they were thinking about going into the season with 26-man rosters was absurd to me, basically just because of this, because pitchers weren't going to get all the work that they needed uh, and that you were running the risk of injury. But this, again, comes down to it all comes down to squeezing more dollars out of stuff. The owners didn't want to go to 28-man rosters if they could avoid it for the first month of the season because that's two extra guys that they'd have to pay about $3,500 a day to for, for three weeks, um, which is, you know, it's pennies on the dollar. You lose a pitcher in, in which you've invested tens of millions of dollars for the season, uh, even with your insurance policy, you've you potentially wrecked your club season, you've got no return on an investment, and maybe some long-term uh residuals as well. So um, I'm, I'm glad MLB came to its senses and decided this is the way to go. Uh, but I also feel like teams should have been approaching this with a little bit more more caution going in. Okay. Well, I've only been here one day, as I said, so I don't have a lot of observations so far. Uh, I, I will say at that game yesterday, Brad Miller uh, hit his third home run of the spring. Uh, he hit 20 home runs last year in a part-time role. He, he played a, he played a lot, uh, but it was like I think 331 uh, played appearances or at bats, uh, official at bats. Not a lot for 20 home runs. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, this is growing on me the idea of him uh, platooning with somebody. I don't know if that guy should be Nick Solak or not, uh, but I I think that they should probably be able to get something out of Brad Miller. Well, I mean, I, I, listen, if you, you look at championship teams, and particularly the one that Chris Woodward points to all the times is, is, is the Dodgers, um, they, in, in several cases, have taken two halves and made a better whole. And I think that's the way the Rangers are approaching some of these situations, particularly in left field. Uh, Brad Miller is a guy that both Woodward and Chris Young have some, some background with um, as teammates and one is a coach. Um, he hits right-handed pitching well. Uh, he is, by all by all um, understanding, a really good a really good clubhouse guy, and uh, it just fits right. And 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 if you can accentuate his strengths, look if if you had played Charlie Culberson at third base last year, only against left-handed pitching his numbers would have been outstanding. He absolutely crushed left-handed pitching. His numbers took a beating because he faced right-handed pitching. Um, so if, if you can take a couple of guys like this and put together a better hole than you would if you, you just worked one guy in there, it makes all the sense in the world. I, I, in 2019, Nick Solak really crushed left-handed pitching. He hasn't for the last two years. It's been more kind of just, about league average on, on how he's done against left-handed pitching. But if you can do that and, and get him to be a little bit more productive against left-handed pitching, you've got a nice situation in left field. Uh, you've got the possibility of Cole Calhoun and maybe Eli White in a, in a loose platoon where White, if he's healthy, might play center field and Adolis would move over to right field against, uh, against left-handers. But Cole Calhoun's another guy who, you know, does really well against right-handed pitching struggles against lefties yeah you know i'm trying to remember the last time the rangers ran just a, a strict platoon lefty righty platoon uh I, I know obviously they played a lot of guys last year but i don't i don't recall those as 
as, okay, it's a lefty today. So this guy's going today in this position and this guy's going, you know, the tomorrow. I don't, I don't recall a situation in a long, long time where they've gone into the season, basically embracing the idea of a platoon. Yeah. And, and this year, this year they are, they are very much embracing that wherever, wherever they can um, to this point, look, if they want to, there's there's a way for them to set up a roster when if they're facing left-handed pitching, they could have one left-handed hitter in the game if, if they need to. You know, they can they could potentially go with a, a lineup that has Heim at catcher, Garver at first base, uh, Seeger, uh, Semyon at second, Seeger being the one lefty at, at shortstop. You've got Andy Abanez in, in, at third base. You've got Solak in left, uh, White in, in center, and Garcia in right, and then you can DH. Um, you've got another right-hander that you could DH on the on the bench in that situation. So uh, there's some possibilities there that if this club wants to go with with a really heavy right-handed lineup against lefties, they can run it out. And I, I think in a couple of situations they realize, look, we can go out and get some big-time studs in Semyon and Seager. But the way to address some other situations is to try and take a half, a couple of halves, and make a hole. Yeah. All right. Uh, we've talked a lot about the lineup. We haven't talked much about the rotation. And uh, There's John, good reason for that. Yeah, you because know, there's not one. Uh, John Gray is pitching today as we record this. Uh, he's pitching at uh, 1 o'clock um, Mountain Time. And uh, it's over there on the Kansas City's backfield. So I'm going over there today, Evan, to watch him instead of going over to the uh, to the big geek big league game uh, and, and watch it. Cause I want to see what John Gray can do. And here's what I want to ask you. The Rangers have had a lot of success the last few years and taking guys who were a little bit, you know, uh, a little bit raw maybe, or maybe had kind of uh, hit a wall and uh, tinkering with some things and then making the, them into really good pitchers. A prime example, of course, Lance Lynn, who's just been terrific since the Rangers uh, found him and, uh, and Kyrie invigorated his career. But Mike Miner also was one of those guys. Um, let's see, who, who am I leaving out here? There was well, Kyle Gibson had a big first yeah. half last year. Yeah, he did. Uh, um, so, do you think that John Gray is set up for that type of thing, or is, 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 it, is there anything different that he's doing now uh, that he was not doing before? Well, listen, he – any pitcher that comes out of Colorado is dealing with some real mind games while he's while he's up there. Um, and in John Gray's situation, he it was almost almost perverse, really, for for the way his things worked. He he actually was more effective in Colorado than he was on the road. But it's it's always a matter of these guys having to change up their their repertoires to some extent to to account for the atmosphere and the environment in Colorado and, and, and the, the, the altitude. I think that he'll feel this year like he can be more consistent from start to start. He has um, talked very much about the slider that he has added since he came to the Rangers and that the Rangers have had some, uh, a, some positive results with from pitching coach uh, Doug Mathis and co-pitching coach Brendan Segarra. Um, so, they feel like there is there's more in the tank with John Gray. And uh, listen, I can't gauge anything on, on, on spring training. 
Um, first of all, it's spring training. You're facing guys maybe one or two at bats. You're not facing them a third time through. Secondly, it's Arizona and all the issues that go with playing at, at high altitude or with um, with an inability to create any kind of tack or moving this, moving movement on the ball um, presents itself. But I can tell you this, you know, he, he sounds like a pitcher with a lot more conviction in his slider than he did uh, a year ago. And if that's the case, you know, conviction is, is more than 50% of the game. I love that. Conviction is more than 50% of the game. See, you listen to this podcast and you get things you can put on that you can stitch onto a little thing and then hang on your wall. Yeah. Conviction yeah. is more than 50 Stitch things. Mm-hmm. No, stitch things. Yeah. Not put that on there. Get your, uh, get your uh, mother to do that for you. Um, so um, we, uh, so that, so if I'm going to look at this rotation right now, mm-hmm. uh, your, your guess as to the, uh, uh, who were, who will be in the rotation and in what order on opening day? I, I think the one thing the Rangers are really, I think the more difficult question the Rangers have to answer than who will be in the rotation right now is what order, because these guys are going to be limited on pitch counts and you're going to have three young guys in the rotation and you don't want to. Uh, overwork your bullpen if you can avoid it. So I think the five guys in the rotation in terms of experience are going to be Gray, Perez, Dunning, Hearn, and Spencer Howard, who had a good outing the other day. I mean, I think that's the way the Rangers would like to go. Now, how you deploy them may not be in accordance with, with their their major their major league career track records because you probably want to spread those young guys out as much as possible so that they don't get backed up on, on consecutive days. Plus you've also got the idea you're, you're opening the season, you know, season opener is a big deal. That's going to go to John Gray. I'm a hundred percent certain. Uh, and you've got the home opener in game four. And that's also, you know, a, a, a game that can create some anxiety. So how you arrange that, I'm not sure, but for me, it probably goes something like this. You go John Gray and then you drop maybe Taylor Hearn into the number two spot uh, the first time through because he's a left-hander, so you go right-left. Then you come back with Dane Dunning, who's got you know some ability to pitch some innings for you, another right-hander. Then Hearn uh, – I'm sorry. Uh, then Martin Perez in the four spot. Another guy who's got some track record is a lefty, gives you another lefty-righty balance and can potentially give you some innings. And then Howard in the fifth spot. So you would put um, uh, Perez fourth instead of second? In that lineup, I, I would for right now, yeah. I, and for for another reason, I mean, it gives you Martin Perez opening is pitching the home opener as opposed to Taylor Hearn. And and again, I I just prefer some experience in that situation early on. And I don't want to jam up my rotation with innings at the front and then have three straight days where I'm going to have to go run for multiple inning middle relievers. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's uh, so. Not, it looks like that Martin Perez will finally get the, a chance to start the home opener. Then remember he, when uh, he didn't get that opportunity when he was here with the Rangers uh, the first time around, and they started a reliever instead of him. Which I, uh, I believe was, that was the Tanner Shepherd's year. Yeah, yeah, that was the Tanner Shepherd's year. That was a very bad decision uh, by the Rangers. I don't think that Martin ever quite recovered from that. We have such little faith in you. We're going to start a reliever in the opener right. instead of you. Um, I heard a lot of people, uh, or I've heard people say, talk about Martin and how much he's matured. Um, and they talk about how, you know, of course, Chris Woodward doesn't 
didn't know him. And uh, he, he said he just was kind of goofy. I never got the impression that uh, that Martin was just so goofy as he was just very, very sensitive. Uh, and that maybe that's the, the thing that he's matured is that he's toughened up a little bit. What do you think? I, listen, I uh, I think this is one of those cases. I, I, I got really tired of people talking about how Martin Perez didn't handle um, – mistakes behind him well and i felt like there was a lot of inference that okay this is a this is a young latin guy and he's affected more emotionally than other guys um and i i thought that was wrong because i saw cole hamels have the same situation when he was with the rangers and and so i've tried to always block that out what i do think martin perez struggled with maturity wise was there were a number of injuries that were really Strange happenstances, right? Slamming the, the the door on his thumb on a in a hotel room in in New York, um, falling off a falling off a fence when a bull bucked in, in in Venezuela. Those are some things that that just they're weird circumstances that cost him time and cost him some uh, some ability to uh, to really have effectiveness. And I think leaving the Rangers also was really good for his career because it was a situation where I think there was a whole group of guys. The first time around, the Rangers farm system kind of rose in in um, prominence. There were there were a group of prospects that were all really, I, I, for lack of a better term to me, they were coddled and they were all treated special. And all of them have underachieved at the big league level. And I think when he left the Rangers and he went to Minnesota and he realized I've got to do something now to extend my career. And they taught him the cutter and he started working the cutter in. I think that did a lot for who he was as a pitcher. And I think that experience in both Minnesota and Boston has made him see that, you know, it's it, that, that just because he was once considered the prime prospect here, he's not in, entitled to things. And I think that has played a big part in in the growth of Martin Perez. And look, I mean, it's like he said to me now, I'm, I'm 31, you know, I mean, I was a I was an immature guy in my twenties, and I'm an immature guy in my fifties. But I, I think for pitchers, you know, you're a big league pitcher, you mature over time. And I, I think that these these situations and experiences he's had over the last four years have really helped him grow. All right, that's going to do it for our uh, Rangers segment of the podcast. Uh, we're going to go into a little potpourri now. We're going to talk about uh, the tournament, uh, and we're also going to talk about. Um, what's going on with the Cowboys these days. And, um, and you never know what might else come up. Uh, first, <clears throat> let's, let's talk about uh, the uh, NCAA tournament. Uh, ended up with uh, Duke, Carolina, Kansas, and Villanova. Uh, I had one of those. I had Kansas. You know, whenever I pick – you know, Kalashaw, Tim Kalashaw loves to pick, you know, upsets and these kind of things and thinks you're not really doing your job unless you're – really reaching. It's like, no, I'm always thinking um, what's the one most likely to get there. I'm, I'm, I'm going with that one. So um, it was, it's been a very entertaining tournament. I don't think it was quite as entertaining the last week. Uh, there was a lot of stuff going on. I guess, you know, you're going to say that after St. Peter's finally lost uh, and everything caught up with them. There was of course, no way <clears throat> they were going to make the final four. I didn't think, you know, uh, but they gave it a, a great run and it was a lot of fun and everybody got to enjoy that. So, um, Evan, who did you have in the, in your final four? Um, <clears throat> Kevin, you know, I have, 
I've kind of stopped doing a bracket the last few years because of this exact experience. I've, I've just, they've been so bad. Um, you know, I went into the tournament and the team that I had, I had followed the most close, the closest this year was tech. And I really thought that they, they lined up well to come out of that region because they had great guard play and because they had, they had really good defensive play. Um, and listen, they were in a position to beat Duke, but I, 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 what I was most surprised with was that Duke got a lot of good looks at the basket and had some easy baskets in the second half of that game. Um, they got penetration like other teams did not get against uh, against Texas Tech. So, uh, listen, I like I, Mike Shashevsky is. I, I guess we can say right. He's the best basketball college basketball coach of all time. He's, he's surpassed everybody else on the list now. Sure, is he, is he a, a head of Wooden? Oh well, I think it's kind of hard to say that. You know, Wooden won an awful lot of championships. What he went eleven. Uh, that's that's kind of hard to to beat that. In a smaller um, field, though, right? In a smaller field. Well, you're in a smaller field, but you're also the you know your chances of making the tournament are a lot harder. Sure. Uh, so. Uh, I think I think the you can't uh, diminish uh, diminish what uh, they did there. Not only were they great, but they gosh, my gosh, he had always had the best players right. in the history of the game. He had Walton, he had Jabbar, you know, like holy cow! I mean, you, know, I, I, you, you could unbelievable. We could line it up however we want, right? The middle stand is going to have Wooden and and Shashevsky on there, and and maybe Dean Smith, right? I mean, that's that's probably the metal stand. Probably um, people would put Bob Knight on there. Uh, you know, I, I have my issues with Knight. I, uh, I, Bob Knight's on, not on my list. I'd rather I'd, I'd probably have Roy Williams or Bill Self up there, but that's just me. Um, but it's a good story. I mean, for Shashevsky's last year to go out with a Final Four, and and I, you know, he deserves it. And and his team has played played up. Um, Kansas for me is always a Final Four contender. Uh, Villanova is the, is obviously the surprise for me. Um, and North Carolina is quite frankly, a little bit of a surprise for me. So, um, I I just think it's, I think there's some good storylines. I would have loved to have seen St. Peter's, uh, somehow get to the final four to have that 15 be a great storyline, but listen, it was a great storyline to where they got. And it was, it, it was, I think that's what kind of ruined the final weekend for everybody is everybody got St. Pete's fever and wanted to see them pull off the unthinkable. And when they couldn't, and when that game got out of hand early, it was like, okay, then the the Cinderella story is dead now. Yeah. It's no fun to watch them just get mopped up after that. Uh, Nobody wants to see that with their Cinderella pick. Um, Yeah. No question about that. Well, it's it's like I uh, uh, said earlier, uh, I think that uh, Duke and North Carolina in particular, their pedigree has finally come to fore here in the course of the tournament. You know, the more these young guys play, the more comfortable they get, and their talent starts to take over. Uh, I'm not, I know you said you were a little surprised by Villanova. I don't think we can be very surprised about anything Jay Wright does there. He, You know, it's a little bit like, um, you know, the, of course, the Mavericks took uh, Jalen Brunson uh, in the second round, early in the second round. And he was just a terrific – has been a terrific player for them ever since he's been there uh, on the in the Mavericks roster. And then, of course, they had the opportunity to draft Sadiq Bey, uh, another Villanova guy. And instead, they took Josh Green, who has played better at times this year, but is still not playing as well as Sadiq Bey is. And at this point, I don't know why anybody wouldn't take a Villanova guy in the second – you know, you can argue whether they, they have the pedigree to be first-round picks – 
But in the second round, I mean, I'd, I'd take it, you know, everybody on their roster because they're, they're well coached. They, most of them play three or four years. Um, they're ready to play for you. You don't have to, you know, that was one of the things that Donnie Nelson told me before, before everything went south with the Mavericks was that, you know, why they, or trading draft picks all the time. He said, we just don't want to babysit these guys. Well, they have like those Villanova guys, you know, the guys that stay three and four years, right? They have a higher floor than most guys because they have been in a system. They have learned a system and, and they've applied it and they've had more, more time to develop. You start taking the one and dones and you're going to go through some degree of a learning curve with those guys. Oh yeah. No question about that. No question. All right, let's uh, let's. So while we should go ahead and say then who who have you got who have you got in the championship game and who's who's going to win it? Uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go with the storybooks finish. You know, I, I at this point I just like to see Coach K walk out with with uh, with the title um, and and say so long to you. But I, I've got I've got no issue with with any of those teams winning, and I. I I've always liked the Kansas program and the way they do things. So uh, I don't have a real dog in the hunt at this point in time. I think the best story is, is Duke. Um, but I also, you know, I know how passionate Kansas fans are and I would love to see that. Yeah. I'm going to go with Duke too. That, that's going to be my, my call. Not only I, have a, I do have one college basketball question for you, Kevin, on this tournament or one shining moment question. Go ahead. Um, so we've had, a significant number of Texas teams advance uh, to the tournament this year. And I'm just curious, you know, Baylor won everything last year. Chris Beard was in his first year at Texas. TCU obviously uh, made the tournament and made a little bit of noise early on. We talked about Tech. Um, Houston and Kelvin Sampson are, are doing great things. What Texas program do you think is set up the best for long-term success? Uh, you know, I think a lot of people would say Texas because of Chris Beard, he's, he might be the best coach and certainly he's at a place now where he has everything he wanted. That's why he left Lubbock. It's not just because he went to Texas, but because, uh, he thinks he's going to get the best players if he goes to Texas. So people would say that I, I would never though, uh, uh, overrule the possibilities for Kelvin Sampson because, um, they get players there and he coaches them up really well. Uh, and you know, they, because that's the thing that's remarkable about what they did. Uh, their two best players, uh, Marcus Sasser and Tremont Mack, were out in December. And so they played the whole – I don't know if Mack is really one of their best – he's one of their best players, but certainly Marcus Sasser was their best player. How many teams in the tournament went that deep missing their best player? Uh, so I, I think that, you know, he's got his team to the Final Four last year. He, he made the Elite Eight this year. Um, I, I think that uh, he – he coaches them up just about as well as anybody. And, you know, when you're playing in the, uh, in the AAC, you're not getting real beat up every night. Uh, it's not like playing in the Big 12, and and those things can kind of hurt your – can put a ding in your uh, rankings and that, and that sort of thing. Well, that was going to be my, my follow-up question, though, is like will going, will going to the SEC impact Texas and Oklahoma at all? Uh, in a negative way, will the, the new shape of the Big 12 impact the Baylors, the Techs, and the TCUs in a positive way? Uh, could be. You know, the the big the, the SEC was you know obviously not very good in the tournament, uh, and it's just not a basketball league. I mean, there's Tennessee, Tennessee probably has as and LSU, LSU and Tennessee probably have as good a, a you know 
history and, and uh, as, as just about anybody else. And, but really, that's it. I mean, I you know, I don't look at anybody else and and uh, really in Florida, you know, well, Florida feels like it's ebbed, and they they've just lost their coach. You know, yeah. um, obviously Kentucky's always going to be there. Missouri has been on a on, on a downturn ever since it got to the SEC, right? Yeah, uh, you know, I yeah, you know, I can't believe I left out Kentucky, uh, but yeah, I I think that. Arkansas is on the upswing now. Uh, Arkansas is. Uh, Eric Musselman has done a terrific job there. I just thought, though, the thing that kind of blew me away in their last game is just it, uh, there was no offense. You know, it was, you know, no take comes down and dribbles around and shoots, you know, and it's like, how about running something? You know, your, your offense is doing nothing in this game and you're, you know, you're, you're not calling anything. So I, I do think, though, he's a really good coach. And then uh, they finally have gotten themselves back to a situation where they have a, uh, this is their best coach since Nola Richardson. So they, uh, they're, uh, they're kind of doing something now. So and you'll have Cincinnati coming into the AAC, right? I mean, Cincinnati coming into the big 12. Yeah. Um, which is obviously a basketball, a strong basketball program or has been traditionally. Um, how will that impact the big 12, the, the, the trade-offs? Oh, not as good. I mean, Cincinnati's good, but not as good as, as Texas and, and Oklahoma. I can't, I can't believe that Oklahoma has allowed this, uh, in their basketball to, to kind of fall to this level, you know, yeah. uh, they, that used to be a really great program, you know, and, and, uh, for a long time, I really think that it just kind of shows you that in Texas and Oklahoma, both that if you're really good at football, we don't care about basketball, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that's, uh, that's been the issue. Um, so uh, they need to they need to pick it up. There's no question about that. Before we get out of here, let's talk about the, the Cowboys a little bit. Uh, Jerry Jones was asked at the uh, owner NFL meetings um, yesterday about a couple of things about the um, the paternity suit. I guess you'd call it. I don't know if that's strictly the uh, term for it. Filed by a young woman, a 25-year-old woman, against him, uh, and then uh, also the very unsavory story of Rich Dalrymple, the former uh, chief of uh, media out there at uh, the Star, and uh, Jerry kind of talked a little more about both of those things and said that, uh, in particular, uh, about uh, Rich Dalrymple, that uh, that he. He felt good about everything they do out there, uh, that uh, everything in the organization is great. They've got great HR. They've got great everything. And it's so great. That's why they're paying cheerleaders $2.4 million when he says nothing happened. Um, so I guess from that standpoint, then maybe he's right. They're just willing to hand out $2.4 million to these four women when you know they've got no case. Wow. What, a, what an organization to work for. Yeah, Obviously, I think other cheerleaders are going to line up for their for their payments. I mean, it, yeah. it's listen. One of the things that I I really love my job and I love the beat that I cover. Um, but one of the things that has always made me uncomfortable about potentially covering the Cowboys is how do you take anything Jerry says um, with any level of gravity? You know it. it it's clear that all he tries to do is obfuscate um, and bloviate. I, 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 he's just, he's all over the place. He, he, he talks about stuff without any, without any point. He says stuff that's nonsensical. And in a lot of cases, it's, it's, it's not even believable. So uh, yeah, it's like we were talking before the show, right? He, he said a bunch of stuff at the owner's meetings. 
none of it had any had anything besides superficial meaning to it, right? Right. Um, so how how do you how do you put any of that into context? And it it's it, it to me is just another I guess it's just another um kind of symptom of how kind of above it all the NFL seems to be. You know, they just seem to to walk on and they can do whatever they want and there's no uh there's no retribution. Uh, well, they make a lot of money. They make more money than anybody else. Uh, and so that's, that's the deal. The attitude kind of seems to be, what are you doing trying to get in our way? We're, we're trying to make a lot of money here, you know, and that seems to be their justification for everything that they do. As for Jerry and the things that he says, I've always been uh, amazed by Jerry. I can remember back in the early nineties and, um, going into his office and I was doing some sort of story. I can't remember what it was. And it's just me and him in there and he's talking and he's having the most difficult time uh, telling me an answer to a question. And finally at some point he says, he says, help me out here, you know? And I thought, so what is the deal with Jerry? Is he just a poor communicator or is it because he lied so much that he's always trying to think of a way to get around what he's talking about. Um, I don't know which one it is, Frank. I, I, I do think he's a poor communicator. There's no question about that. He, But, you know, I think there's a reason for some of that, too. I think he feels like if I talk like this, people will go away thinking, I don't know what he just said. Uh, and so, therefore, I can get away with, with some of the things. That I look like I'm being helpful here, and I'm trying to answer your questions, but I'm really not saying anything. You know, that's what... You know, we, we, we put a headline on something. Yeah, but it's, it's so obvious, right? I mean, to all of us who, 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 who ever try and, like, read the comments for any context, it's so obvious that that's exactly what he's trying to do, right? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and, you know, it's just uh, – it, it makes for great fodder for columns, I'll tell you that. I, I should be grateful to Jerry all these years, giving me such a, a load of material to mine from, you know, that. And, and of course, now lately, Mark Cuban as well. Uh, you know, just it's amazing to me what uh, both those guys and I, and the funny thing about that is that I really do think that in many ways Mark is a really good guy, does a lot of good things, tries to do things for people. But it's like, how many of these sexual harassment things are we going to have before we realize that man, something's going on here in this organization? Three of these in the last four years—that's kind of a lot. Uh, so you know, uh, and and of course. Who knows what all's been going on out at uh, Valley Ranch and at the Star uh, all these years? I, I, you know, I've heard so many stories about things happening in restaurants and, and people I know uh, who tell me they saw these things, and and you know, it's like uh, I just I would believe almost anything about Jerry Jones uh, that he's capable of almost just about anything. You know, it's just it's amazing uh, what's happened all these years uh, with this organization. Look, I just go back to this, right? I, I look at Jerry's yacht at this point in time, and I look at where we are in the world and what what we've been doing with yachts lately, and the <laughs> and the fact that yachts are the are the play toy of the oligarch, and the oligarch and what the meaning of an oligarch is uh, is is so kind of dirty, obviously. And to me, that's I think of Jerry as like an oligarch. That's what I think of him as, right? Sure. Um, I think he would like to be thought of that way. Oh, I think he probably would. He'd probably like to be called Ollie the Oligarch. But (laughs) it it, it does kind of come across now. I mean, the more 
the more you, you you see out there, it's it's just like it's a great way. The way you you kind of explain it is, look, what are you guys trying to do? We're 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 here. We we've got money to make. Just move out of the way. Who cares what you what you've found, what you've written? We're, we're going to go make some money here. And and in a lot of ways, that you know, it it is gross, for lack of a better term. Yeah, it is. Yes, it is gross. So let's end it on that uh, note. I think that's great. No, let's, let's, let's end on a happy note. I'm going to. Oh, oh um, that's right. You're going to tell us about the guy that SMU just hired to be the basketball coach. Well, I'll just say this. Listen, I, basketball coach. Uh, Rob Lanier comes from Georgia State. Obviously, uh, that is my alma mater. Um, but what I, what I do know is this. Georgia State has built a decent basketball program among mid-majors over the last two decades, and it's been a pretty astounding rise. Uh, their gym is, is is literally a gym, and it's on the third floor of a building. Um, they are in downtown Atlanta and have never, ever, until the last 15 years or so, had even any on-campus housing. They faced a lot of real issues, and the guys who have been there, um, uh, Ron Hunter, who's now at Tulane and building that program, and Rob Lanier, who has built this program in Atlanta, have have taken less than great circumstances, found a way to recruit an area that has really good college, high school level basketball talent, and built good mid major programs. And I think the fact that now Rob Lanier comes to SMU uh, in a in a little bit higher profile conference with more resources, uh, but the ability to recruit an urban area that's a hotbed of talent, I think is really going to serve him and SMU well. And I, I do think it was a good hire. And quite frankly, for for me, I thought that it was the hire that Georgia should have made as opposed to Mike White from Florida uh, for their program. But uh, congratulations to SMU. And we'll see what Rob does, what does, what he does there on the hilltop. But I think it was a good and inspired hire. And I think mostly because of the idea that he'll be able to bring the approach that he brought to recruiting the state of Georgia and Atlanta in particular to Dallas, Fort Worth, and, and Texas. Did Rick Hart call you and ask you for a recommendation? No, he did not. I, I just, I do think it, I, I just do think it was, it, it's a good hire. I, I mean, and I'm, I'm, He's taken that program to two, two tournaments in, in the last three years. Uh, the one that he didn't go to uh, was the year that the uh, the tournament was canceled and, and the, the, the team was in, in really good shape there. Um, that team had won this year. They, they had a COVID outbreak, had some games canceled, really went through a tough time. Uh, but then they went out and won their last 11 games going into the tournament and led Gonzaga, you know, with no height whatsoever and their best player out with 10 minutes to play. So I, I think he's got the coaching, um, the coaching bona fides to, to do a good job here. Well, let's hope so. It'd be nice. It'd be a good story for uh, SMU and for uh, college basketball in Dallas, which was, which needs a little good news. Uh, so, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. Thanks for listening uh, in on it. We'll, we'll talk uh, next week about the, the NCAA tournament, the Final Four, and what happened. And we'll talk some more about the Rangers. And and we'll, we'll see what else Jerry Jones does to drum up a little uh, interest in this uh, little football team. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.